indecent exposure. You were convicted of indecent exposure for the third time. That's exactly what it is there, Poindexter. It is four counts of indecent exposure. Welcome, my indecent yet faithful legions of new music junkies to episode number 38 of Indecent Exposure. I am your host, The Mongrel, known in an alternate zip code as JV. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast in Apple Music, Google Play Music, or via whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, And if you have an extra 30 seconds or so, leave us a five-star rating and a review. That really, really helps new listeners discover us. We work hard to help promote the indie music scene, and you can too, by turning people on to indecent exposure. While musicians get the lion's share of attention on this show, long-time listeners will remember that this podcast was also constructed as a home of indie creators in performing arts, literature, game development, and most definitely film. And this episode really uh, will remind me how much more we should be doing to support those brave, uh, starving filmmakers. So in addition to great new music, we'll be hearing from Phil Hawkins, director of the original yet painstakingly faithful derivative work of film, Star Wars Origins. He's done a mind-bending job, both with good old-fashioned storytelling and with state-of-the-art effects, highly unusual in short independent films. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you scroll down to the embedded trailer straight away to see what I'm talking about. During this episode, I'll play clips from my conversation with this up-and-coming director, and then later on, I'll let you know how to hear our whole discussion. He's really a, just a fascinating personality in the world of film today, and I know you'll be hearing more about his work in the near future. Right now, though, let's have a listen to, to some of those tunes I promised. We continue to feature music artists who count on ReverbNation.com to connect both with fans and music industry folks listening for that next sweet noise. Reverb Nation believes that do-it-yourself shouldn't mean that you're all alone. Build your career with Reverb Nation's easy-to-use services and exclusive industry access. Check out all the awesome opportunities at ReverbNation.com ASAP. In fact, one of those artists is the Berkshire's own son, Christopher Considine. You know, I love that while scanning through hundreds of submissions from all over the world, I stumbled across some of the most brilliant lyrics brought to life by one of the most arresting voices from just down the road. He comes from a talented family, so I shouldn't have been too surprised. Uh, His gift for accompanying lyric tales with panache and imagination are evident in On the Cusp, a single that dropped right after his 2019 release of his full-length album, Dugway. So this has been a busy year for, for Mr. Considine. Uh, we'll hear from another Reverb Nation discovery, Firebug, who hailed from Joshua Tree, California, after their relocation from New Orleans. You can trace a wobbly path through their musical influences of 70s folk rock, through 90s grunge, and arriving on the cusp of the new roaring 20s with a blues-infused contemporary rock genre that probably has yet to be named. We'll spin Sinner off their latest release, Wandering Soul, and give you a chance to hear what is truly a once-in-a-generation voice in lead singer Juliet Tourzy. Not straying too far from the blues and into funky soul-drenched territory, we'll hear from Cass Clayton Band, whose 2019 album, Play Nice, gives vocalist Cass Taylor the chance to tell it like it is through a set of pipes widely acknowledged as some of the very best in the business. Flowers at My Feet does a good job showcasing her astounding musicianship and an attitude built for rock and roll. Right after we play nice with Cass, we'll waltz the sticky floor nightclub with Joe Olnick off his brand new release, Iguana. I have to tell you, I have been waiting for this LP to drop ever since I played the track Glendale Avenue off his 2016 release, Defiant Grooves, way, way back in episode number one of our American Roots podcast, The Cornbread Cafe. Uh, link in the show notes if you want to hear that. 
Olnick's latest effort is a great instrumental collection of cosmic experimentalia, jazz-infused folk rock, and super-tight funk rock, an example of which we're going to serve up with the aforementioned Sticky Floor Nightclub. First, though, let's kick off this long set of new indie delights with Christopher Considine and On the Cusp here on Indecent Exposure. Take me back to when I was just a boy on the cusp of living life a bit too fast. Take me back to when I was just a boy on the cusp of giving up and stepping back. Give it. 
to bring Don't look me in the eye Cause you surely won't see a thing Yeah, I've been drinking too much And taking the place of my good man's
If you're interested in catching Firebug live, uh, they'll be rocking the New Year's Eve bash at Landers Brew Company, uh, 1388 Golden Slipper Lane in Landers, California. Then on January 24th, Cass Clayton Band brings that soul, funk, and R&B to the Jazz Funk Connection, 2355 Platt Place, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And you can always check out the band's respective websites for more information and upcoming 2020 event schedules. I provide the link, helpfully, in the show notes. I promised that I'd bring you excerpts from my conversation with director Phil Hawkins, whose Star Wars Origins has been blowing minds in the short time since its release. Uh, Whether you're a sci-fi fan, action-adventure fan, or just a lover of expertly crafted cinema, this is a work you will have to see to believe. Uh, When I stumbled upon the trailer on YouTube, at first I thought that Lucasfilms had somehow managed to keep the most outrageous crossover project secret from the media for an impossibly long time. Uh, When I dug deeper, though, I found that the truth behind Origins was even more impressive. I know a lot of you are going to want to hear my entire interview with Phil Hawkins. And even though I was going to make it premium content, I'm in a generous mood. So just look for the audio player directly above Hawkins' photo in the show notes to listen to our extended chat. It is the perfect example of how that indie spirit flows across art forms and why we'll be bringing more voices from across disciplines onto the show. Hawkins has a love of film that goes back to some of the classics he saw for the first time as a kid. I suppose you could say the same of almost all cinemaphiles. In Hawkins' case, though, when the credits rolled at the end of a a great film, he didn't just leave the theater satisfied at seeing a good story. He walked out with the gears in his mind, turning over the questions of exactly how the film was made. In early adolescence, with no budget and just some patient friends to help him, he set out to unlock the mysteries of movie magic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from basically the first time seeing uh, Star Wars and and Jurassic Park, uh, you know, uh, and also the X-Files had a huge effect on me. Um, And I was just amazed at um, how this thing on a screen can transport me to other worlds and make me feel um different things you know can create emotion from something that i know that i knew was artificial um but i um but i love the escapism of it and especially you know a saga like star wars where it's so kind of alien uh in some ways and then also very relatable in others um to you know where i grew up and and you know the characters involved um so uh, and then i just became fascinated and, and sort of obsessed with how these films were made um and then you know with my friends uh, i basically made um sort of rip-offs of um maybe early fan films you could say of 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 the films and the tv shows that i loved um you know which kind of uh one of the bigger ones is i made a 50 minute version of the phantom menace um in my high school with uh you know, I played Qui-Gon Jinn and I dressed up and we had plastic lightsabers and people dressed up as in cardboard as robots. And it was sort of a spoof of, of the film. Um, and uh, and yeah, I just just by making trying to make film, I was trying to understand how films were properly made and obviously always frustrated that, you know, why does my film not look like that film? You know, um, and that was my that was my film school, really. I just made as many short films, you know, as I could trying to you know, better the sound on the next one and then the lighting on the next one and then maybe the story on the next one, you know, and um, my poor, my poor, poor friends um, <laughs> dragged in uh, to these VHS um, and uh, early kind of high eight tape um, uh, films. Um, and, you know, I, I, we couldn't afford a video camera when I was, when I was younger. So I used to clean my um, sort of a friend of my mum's house so I could have access to this camera. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so it's a bit of an obsession, um, which has now grown into a career, which is, which, is, which is fun. We talked about the rapid technological transformations in filmmaking in recent decades and how many of the tools are now within much, much easier reach of the newcomer. Hawkins entered the profession right at the nexus of digital and analog. He says that he benefited from familiarity with both worlds. 
Yeah, it was very, yeah, very exciting. Um, I mean, it was, um, it was, but also kind of frustrating because I, I, I sort of naively went into, you know, kind of my first film course where I studied it, uh, you know, officially. Um, and uh, because of the new technology and because of things were changing, you know, I was uh, effectively, you know, teaching some of the lecturers how to use the cameras because I'd already made load of films. And, and, um, and you know, and, and it was kind of frustrating because I, I, I sort of giddily and excitedly went into these courses hoping to, you know, learn loads. And obviously I learned a lot about theory, but the practical side of it, because I'd made so many shorts, uh, I sort of knew what I was doing in that, in, in that way. On, obviously on a very low budget, me and a few mates kind of, um, kind of way. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was an exciting time, but also, uh, you know, I think, um, I think these days it's, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because anyone can make a film with, you know, an iPhone or, you know, whatever phone in their pocket, you can go out and, and shoot something, which is absolutely wonderful. And, you know, I encourage people to do it, but what is it that makes you a filmmaker? You know, what, what teaches you how to tell stories and work with actors, you know? And I think, I learned a certain discipline from shooting things on film and then then editing editing in a linear fashion where you you know you made an edit and then you couldn't go back or you had to start again from the very beginning you know um so that so that's actually made me a better filmmaker um um and very much of that generation of kind of you know training on older school techniques and then applying that to digital you know, techniques. So uh, hopefully I'm a sort of best of both worlds. Hawkins brings up the point that while the tools of film have been democratized to a point uh, with the advent of high def cameras now in everybody's pockets, access to the networks and the infrastructure of professional movie making is still informally regulated by social stratification, particularly in Europe. There is there is a large amount of people uh, wanting to do it, especially with YouTube and Vimeo and places like this where you know, your content is both instantly accessible, but also part of a huge mass of, of entertainment, you know, to watch. Um, and it's, you know, uh, and it's also partly why I, well, one of the main reasons I made Origins um, was like, how do you sort of raise your head above the parapet a bit? How do you um, wave at Hollywood studios and go, hey, look at me, I, you know, I, I'm someone that I would love to work with you. And how do you make that noise, um, you know, outside of the usual fare? Um, so, uh, so it is difficult, it is difficult to do it these days, but then it's instantly more accessible. So I think there's a, there's a problem in, in the UK, in, in the media of, of, um, the majority of people working the media and they just released a study for it was um, most of the people were from the kind of middle classes, uh, you know, from families that had a bit of money and a, and a bit of wealth, because in order to work in the industry, there's so much unpaid, you know, work out there to get that experience. And, and there's only certain families and backgrounds that can afford to support their children to live in basically London um, uh, and and do these sorts of jobs. So I think there is a real gap and a real problem um, with the kind of voice of film in the UK. Uh, and I'm very much, um, you know, from a working class background, uh, you know, none of my family uh, work in this industry and, and all of it's just been, you know, sweat, blood and tears um, and hounding phones and networking and just knuckling down and trying to make decent work that hopefully eventually people recognize you know um and uh, just to kind of get a little a little toe in the door um but it's very much been self-generated you know and um i think i think there's anyone out there uh, expecting the phone just to ring um probably needs to <laughs> have a have another look at their strategy when i asked him what about star wars made this saga spanning 40 years so significant, the director of Origins outlined some connections that were both transcultural and deeply personal. Uh, wow, how long is this podcast? Uh, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm, 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 I'm just the slightest Star Wars fan. Um, the, uh, I, I think, you know, Star Wars um, has, you know, it's become, uh, it's become, you know, culture, you know, um, to say it's merely a film is, is not kind of doing it justice because um, it's so much more than that and, and means a lot 
to millions of people in very personal ways. And it's amazing, absolutely amazing, um, how a piece of entertainment can touch so many people from so many different backgrounds and, and across the ages, you know, like how many generations are we into now of people since the 70s um, that still hold it up there in their top five movies? It, it, I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. And as a filmmaker, you know, you, you know, how do you capture that lighten, lightning in a bottle? You know, don't, don't, don't the studios all wish they, they knew how to capture it. But um, I think me, for me personally, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a, the, the, the kind of ANSI-esque, I'd say as a 12-year-old watching it versus a retrospective answer. You know, I think, I think as the 12-year-old, as, as I say, it was that it was exciting. You know, it was unlike anything you'd ever seen, uh, albeit, you know, it was it, it felt dated, but it felt very engaging and very felt very grounded in terms of science fiction, you know, at the time. Um, it didn't even feel like science fiction, actually, when you think about it, um, it you know, and the fantasy elements of it. But I think when I think about it now, like, why did it affect me so much as, as a child? I think it's because I really, I really um, uh, sort of related to Luke and, you know, this farm boy that kind of came from nothing that uh, went on to uh, do great things and, and, you know, and save the rebellion and, and you know, bring down the evil empire and became this special, you know, this special person. And for, for me as a kid growing up in a place where, you know, I, I was laughed at for wanting to be a filmmaker and, and uh, no one was a filmmaker on my street, you know, that grew up, you know, where I was. We were all builders and plumbers and plasterers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, which is wonderful, but I always uh, had my sights on being a filmmaker. So I think it was that. Um, and obviously in the UK, we don't have the idea of the American dream. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it was that idea that you could do, you know, you didn't have to stay on Tatooine. You could, you could reach for the stars, you know, and go on an adventure. And I think, I think that's why it related to me so much um, and, you know, my situation at the time. Anyone who checks out the trailer to Star Wars Origins immediately understands the sheer audacity of what Phil Hawkins has been slaving to achieve. By opening up a portal between both the Star Wars and Indiana Jones universes, two iconically epic filmscapes, he created sort of a self-imposed mandate to produce arguably the most advanced fan film across time and space. I mean, it is a, it's called Star Wars Origins, but it is a, it's kind of a Star Wars, Indiana Jones uh, crossover. And, you know, I think if you, saying that aloud on paper, you, know, you sort of take two of the most successful franchises <laughs> and beloved franchise media history and try and combine them together, it sounds like a mammoth task. But um, it, uh, you know, this has been three, almost four years in the making. So I wish I could sit here and say, oh, I, I always aim to release it a year before you know, the end of the film, uh, that's just become a nice blessing. But it's been four years of trying to get this, you know, over the line. Um, and um, just because of the sheer ambition and nature of, of the film. Um, I mean, the, the, the plot, as much as I like to say, because there are, you know, twists and turns in the film that, um, that the trailer doesn't even hint at. I mean, it's been wonderful to see the reaction to the trailer and people saying, oh, this looks like a studio film. It looks epic. It looks adventurous. And I'm sort of sat here smiling, thinking, you just wait. You just, <laughs> you just wait. There's some, there's some very big stuff um, in the film that the trailer doesn't even hint at. Um, and uh, because obviously for fear of spoilers. Um, but, uh, but essentially the plot is... Um, it's set in World War II in the Sahara Desert, which is exactly where we filmed it. We went to Morocco and shot practically on location in, in, in 50 degree heat, uh, which is 50 degrees um, Celsius on here. So Fahrenheit, I've no idea what that is. Add a few zeros and uh, very hot. Um, so it's about two archaeologists who basically um, are given a map um, to a sacred place that has secrets in that they believe have the power to unite the world in this in in this time of turmoil in this time where we're all fighting each other um, and uh, they feel like it's so powerful that this secret needs to come out but there are forces there is a tribe 
that has forever been sworn to protect these secrets and aren't so willing to uh, let these two Americans uh, reveal the truth about what's in there. Um, so, um, uh, and also it's sort of set during um, the Northern African campaign where the Nazis were, uh, you know, actually moving across Northern Africa. Um, so it sort of becomes entwined into that as well. So an ambitious story, but you can also from that see why aesthetically it can become a bit like Indiana Jones because, you know, we have Nazis, we have the desert, we have archaeologists, you know. Um, so, it, so the plot kind of lends itself to that. Um, and uh, I think in terms of why, I mean, um, I this is a film that has cost me and my uh, executive producer, Gary Cowan, who's a lifelong Star Wars fan like yourself, you know, a heck of a lot of money. It's probably the most, um, probably the most um, expensive Star Wars fan film ever made. Um, and, and we're crazy because we can't profit from it. We can't turn ads on on YouTube. We can't, you can't make any money from it because obviously it's a fan film and, and Lucasfilm, you know, amazingly allows filmmakers to dabble in the world as long as we're respectful of, 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 of the universe um and also uh and and just don't make money you know and there's a big fan film culture especially in star wars on youtube and there's some brilliant ones out there that have you know 10 15 million views you know there's this serious amounts of views from fans um but i didn't really want to do your usual um fan film you know a, a lot of them try to take place within start the star wars uh timeline so they they're trying to complete a bit of the story or this slot scene in you know that takes place in you know a new hope for example you know um but for me um you're always you, you're always setting yourself up to fail as a filmmaker because no matter how much money you have you never have ilm you don't have the money that star wars spends on the concept art and the support and all that and the costumes you just never will so they always feel like a fan film, you know, and that's no disrespect to the filmmakers that have made fan films because some of them are amazing in terms of quality. But as an audience, you know, yes, yeah, sorry, Industrial Light and Magic, who are the big effects company that have, that have, you know, created for the original Star Wars and have gone on to pioneer, you know, visual effects, you know, from that to the, the dinosaurs and Jurassic Park to everything you can think of, you know, going forward. Um, so I, um, so yeah, and I feel like for an audience, it, it almost subconsciously already feels not professional in a way, if that makes sense. Um, because you're trying to copy something that you're already aware of. So I wanted to do something that was, it was a, its own unique story, its own unique characters. Um, but just so happens to be set kind of in, in the Star Wars universe in, in a, in a very different way to what we're used to. Um, and, uh, and that was the challenge. It's, you know, it took a year to write <laughs> and, and get the concept right. Um, and uh, once I'd nailed that initial concept, I thought, you know, I think I have something here. Uh, this is a film I'd love to see, you know. Um, and then the saga of actually making it began. Um, yeah. <laughs> and here we are. These secrets do not belong to you. Naturally, I streamed Star Wars Origins to the largest screen in my house the day it was released. And I've had to work extra hard not to let drop any spoilers, because believe me, any hype I shower on the film won't even come close to doing it justice. As I mentioned earlier, the trailer is embedded in the show notes, so watch that immediately. Then, set aside 20 minutes or so, follow the link to the complete film, and sit back and enjoy a true masterpiece of a sci-fi short, in every way deserving of a place in the Star Wars constellation of tales. And because I know that you're going to want to find out more about Phil Hawkins after watching, I've also provided links to his, to his, what, his YouTube video blog, uh, to his website of his production company, The Film Company, um, and of course to the, the full-length movie. 
And just an FYI, to anyone who manages an independent cinema, Hawkins shot Origins with the tools and techniques used by studios with deep, deep pockets, with the hope that at least some audiences might get a chance to see it on the big screen, as it deserves to be. So if you're interested in gifting a screening of this short to your patrons, get in touch with them through his website. So we are heading back to the music for the rest of this show, and I am de-freaking-lighted to bring back Shokazoba for this episode. I played them a couple few episodes ago, right before their secret stealthy appearance at Hilo North Adams. Now, if you're familiar with this nine-member, horn-driven powerhouse, you probably know that they have this weird way of offering blistering social commentary that you can also dance your ass off to. So it's kind of like happy rebelliousness, you know? Anyway, the track I'm going to spin for you goes back to 2012, but given the dumpster fire that mainstream media has turned into, the tune Script Reader seems like it could have been written yesterday. After that, we'll begin our tour of the Saturday Night Rhythm Project, which started as a demix, which would be the opposite of a remix, of Mr. Williams and Chopstick Dub Plate's jungle track Saturday Night, which was replayed as a reggae track by the Birmingham, UK-based Friendly Fire Band. Well, the rhythm sounded so fat that Tippett Yuri and Mikey Tuff both recorded their own versions. Uh, Mikey Tuff's sound-killing anthem came out digitally at the end of last year and made quite a bit of noise, so Friendly Fire Music has unleashed the other cuts on all streaming platforms and two limited-edition 7-inch records. Mr. Williams' party touchdown and Tippa Iri's plea to reckless minibus drivers in Jamaica, uh, together with a vinyl-only version of the rhythm. In this episode, we'll spin Mikey Tuff's War General and follow up with the other two versions of the rhythm in later shows. Um, after Mikey Tuff, we'll travel back across the Atlantic and join El Desollado in Mexico City for a doom metal experience I hope to catch live one day. I think we'll play their first track, Intro Nebula, off their new album, Flaying. Now, I don't know much about these guys, but I know that they're huge in the CDMX, and if I have anything to say about it, they'll be huge here too. As a liner note, the band says that they recorded the instrumentation for the album in one take, and then added the vocals in that same session, which, as any artist knows, is some beast mode studio work. And we'll wrap up this episode with a song from Samara Moni, an artist who's got music encoded into her very DNA, a relative both of world-renowned bolero singer Carmen Delia Dipini and members of the popular 60s recording artists The Latin Souls. Moni has been following her musical ambitions since she was little. Uh, her 2019 track, Doctor, layers the raw, emotional power of her vocals on top of a composition that blends... Latin pop and rock and R&B with strains of some much older styles of crooning. Uh, we will absolutely be spinning more tracks from this unique talent in the future, if at all possible. Right now, let's get this final set fired up with Shokazoba and Script Reader. Then you must become the least little flower 
Christmas turkey, me wicked and bad, and me get bloodthirsty, killing off everything without no mercy. Peter than lime, and me sour like Cersei. Who are general with the biggest army? Chief of staff, me not have no charge from Kingston, Dean Street, back to Mosley. Kill anything, we try to clash with. Don't push your luck much, let upset me. Hey, right, you know me, I feel tell you this away. The fun stop chapter one in the war, gonna be hand clap chapter two. Identify target, lock chapter three in the saga. Enemies are just as we beat it, pandem. Blacker, dagger, them. In them head, that they matter, but chatter them. Man, I'm gonna beat and batter them. You know, see a few chatter them. Mouth can massive them. Where them are do with man, back at them. Tuffy, I beat them with the bars. They feel no man at again. Number one, pan the chat again. Me have the whole dancer rock again. Head it to the top again. Mike it up, they can't stop again. Can every tune me get hot again? We come out, say, what do them? Send the tall and the short man come. Send the fat and the slim one come. Just up in a bull of clava, full suit of armor. I mean, they one done. You know why? I feel me style and I eat them try to take back. Them love me flow and I wonder when me get that. I am so fly, them ask me if I jet that. No ballet, I chat them, I can strictly jet locks. No please be skin, y'all love how me jet black. Look how me slim, look how me trim, yeah, I mean that. Some say them run the city, but they have it gridlock. When we are war, guarantee we have with chin strap. She got happy and we bust it till the nozzle hat. We burn that, run that, and done that. Me are the white general. Go to your funeral. The enemy are the one general. Eliminate everything in a mind. Yo, the enemy are the one general. So 
some boy end up in a funeral. Yeah, me and the white general. Robin, you can tell them one more time. Yo, what do that sound boy with him get so bossy once a year in my war? Like Christmas turkey, me wicked and bad, and me get bloodthirsty, killing off everything without no mercy. Bitter than lime, and me sour like Cersei. Why general with the biggest army? Chief of staff, me not a no charge from Kingston, Dean Street, back to Mosley. Kill anything, we try to clash with. Don't push your luck much, let upset me, hey. Right, you know me, I feel tell you this away the fun stop chapter one in the war gonna be and chapter two identify target lock chapter three in the saga enemies are drop as we beat your play general Soon boy, go to your funeral. Yeah, me and the white general eliminate everything in a mind. Yo, yeah, me and the white general. Soon boy, end up in a funeral. Yeah, me and the white general.
did I tell you? It sounds to me like Samara Moni has everything she needs to take over the airwaves and the interwebs. Remember, if you love what you hear from her, or any of the artists we play, you should definitely follow them on social media and message them to say you heard them on Indecent Exposure and you want them to keep the tunes coming. That's why I provide the links to their sites and socials. And they really do appreciate the encouragement. You know, it's, it's tough work being an indie artist. I should point out, before we go, that Shirka Zoba will be bringing the funk to the first night celebrations New Year's Eve at the Deuce Club at 50 Con Street, Northampton, Massachusetts. And Friendly Fire Band's next scheduled show is May 1st at the 0161 Music Festival 2020 at St. Kentigern's Social Club, Heart Road, M147, Manchester, United Kingdom. Though I'd be shocked if their calendar doesn't start filling up before that. As always, check your favorite band sites often for current tour info because I'm not going to have you blaming me if you show up at a club and there's like a, a Bee Gees tribute band playing instead of the group you went to see. Well, that is it for this week's show. Uh, we'll be back before you know it with another 2XL size selection of painstakingly curated tunes just for you. Until then, thanks for listening, and make a resolution to get even more indecent in the new year. Take care.